0: This is Our Voices. I'm Mario Trimble. In order to be a place where everyone in our community feels valued and connected, we first have to ensure everyone believes they belong. These are Our Voices. A joint podcast production from the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Joint Steering Committee. Our Voices shines a light on the unique stories, experiences, and backgrounds of our member leaders so that we can help each other walk together. Passionate about human rights, Anjali Nanda focuses on helping clients with immigration matters at Acumen Law. Her love of people and travel have guided many of her decisions, from the area of law that she practices to meeting her partner in life. The daughter of a refugee and law professor, Anjali has made people, culture, and advocacy the focus of her life and work. During her time with U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services in the Department of Homeland Security, she parlayed her expertise and experience into effective advocacy. Anjali opened up to Nicole Sparaza and Courtney Holm about her experiences, including balancing cultures as a child and young adult, creating such programs as asylum clinics and scholarship endowments, and her connection to the Denver Broncos.
1: Welcome to Our Voices. My name is Nicole Sparaza, and I'm a solo practitioner in the Denver metro area practicing civil litigation and family law. And I have a co-host with me, Courtney Holm.
2: I'm Courtney Holm. I am an attorney at Courtney Holm and Associates in Edwards, Colorado, focusing on mediation, family law, criminal defense, and civil litigation.
1: Today we have with us Angelina Nanda, who's an attorney at Acumen Law. And we're excited to have her on the podcast today and to talk about who she was,
3: who she is, and who she will be. So welcome, Anjali. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you, Courtney. It's really a pleasure to be with you guys today.
1: So I want to talk a little bit about who you were. So your upbringing, your background. I know that you're close with both of your parents. So can you tell me
3: a little bit about your relationship with them? Yes, definitely. Um, So I was um, born and raised in Denver I grew up in Park Hill, um, which is, um, one of, one of the most intentionally integrated neighborhoods in Denver, um, and it's a really, it was a really wonderful place to grow up. Um, I'm an only child and, um, very, very close to my parents. We're, uh, um, pretty, pretty tight-knit, um, and I, I went to George Washington High School and, um, stayed and stayed in Denver for college, stayed in Denver for law school, stayed in Denver forever. I left only for a few years after I graduated law school, but um, you know quickly thereafter came back. So Denver is very, very, very much home.
1: And I know that Denver is also very much home for your mom
3: and your mom's family. That's right. yeah, my my mom's family goes back um many decades. Um, she grew up. Not far from where I grew up, she has two sisters and um, much of their family is still here and um, she's uh, she also went to DU for law school. she went to East High School and um, she is uh, you know she practiced law for many years and is still active in the legal community. Um, but her family is, is pretty well entrenched in the in the Denver um, in the Denver world <laughs> the small <laughs> Denver world that we have here and I know that there's a tidbit about your grandfather <laughs> on your mother's side um in the 60s he was um, one of the owners of the Broncos he um, was a he he also had um, some ownership interest in some of the other um, major sports teams in Denver so they were pretty um my mom often talks about how she got to play the organ at um the at some of the games some of the Broncos games or um he actually my grandfather was involved with the Broncos at a time when the Denver fan base was um quickly dwindling at one point there were some there were some rumors that were going around that he was looking for a, a new city that might be more you know generate more excitement <laughs> so we could call your grandfather the unifier i would <laughs> like to Bronco say so. <laughs> <laughs> i would like i would like to give him credit for that yeah
2: <laughs> well i'm i'm curious was your mom able to play the Organ during games or just you kind know, of mess around on the organ d- when it wasn't a game.
3: Oh, I think I think sometimes during games, you know. Well, I don't know if, if you know they actually let her her be the one that played it when they were, you know, doing dun, 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 dun charge whatever they do. Um, <laughs> I always think that I would like to think that she got to do it in in real in real time, but probably not. It's probably <laughs> just one of you know that was the thing she was most excited about was at the games, wasn't the actual. Um, you know athleticism that was going on on the field, it was the organ in the in the, in the background <laughs> not
1: so much a sports ball fan,
3: <laughs> less so, I think so tell me about your dad um so my dad came to the u s around that same time frame um and uh, around that time he uh, was born in india um he was um Born actually in um, what is now Pakistan so he was born in, the, in a place called Gujranwala. and um, when uh, the when Indian Pakistan split when partition happened in 1947 he um, so his mother was a Sikh um, his father was a Hindu and they lived in um, a pretty mixed neighborhood of Hindus and Muslims um, they had really good relationships with all of their neighbors um, until until partition. And um, I think you know in the in the days and months and weeks leading up to partition, their uh, neighbors kept saying, Well, we can protect you, you know even though you're Hindus, we can we'll we'll watch out for you. Um, it came to a point when they said, finally, we can't protect you anymore and um uh, fighting was increasing and they um they decided that my grandfather and um my dad's siblings so he was the youngest of twelve and um he had uh, you know the the old his oldest brother was um in the was in the military at the time, so they decided that my grandfather and my dad's older siblings would all travel ahead and they would find, um, you know, a settlement. They would, they would find a new home in what was then being created as India. And uh, my dad stayed back with my grandmother. So the two of them stayed back to uh, wait until they heard from them and to sort of guard some of their, you know, prize, their, their possessions as long as they could. And then at, uh, you know, the, the fighting got to be so bad that they Uh, my dad and grandmother eventually had to flee themselves so they left their home and um, they he tells about how they they got to the train station where there were you know only a few trains at this point that were that were running still and he uh there was an explosion so they had to they had to end up walking many 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 miles uh, in the end he says they walked hundreds of miles the two of them and uh, his mother at one point um had her uh, you know one one suitcase and him and so she left the suitcase which had all of their uh, prized possessions all of their you know, family heirlooms and then things that were really really precious and she left put them down so she could carry my dad who was just a little guy at the time and uh, they walked and walked and walked and walked uh, at one point they were on a they were on a train and he tells the story of how it was stopped um, by Muslims I guess who are who are trying to stop the trains that were full of Hindus who are moving to India and they went from sort of car to car and just massacred everyone and they got to a car where my dad was with uh, my grandmother and there were some um, Sikhs in the in the car who were armed so they fought them off saved their lives obviously they had to keep they had to walk from that point on but um he he, he remembers he remembers things that are just horrific um from that time that were you know there was just bodies everywhere and blood on the streets and um it's hard to get him to talk about it, but when it do- when he does, it's um, it's really I don't know cathartic for is the right word, but it's a really um, I think important part of the history to hear him talk about it. And I actually interviewed him for StoryCorps oh. one time, and um, we talked about it. And then um, they're actually also doing a it's called a 1947 project where they're interviewing survivors of this time and and trying to record their stories. So. Um, In the end, he did, they reunited with my grandfather and all of his siblings. Um, They had assumed that my dad and grandmother were dead because they had heard, you know, the the accounts from that that area that where there were no trains and all the trains were being Mm -hmm. stopped and everyone killed. So they assumed that the worst and they had... They went into mourning, and they all uh, were wearing white, as the traditional Hindus wear white during mourning. So when they eventually were reunited, I imagine it was pretty uh, emotional and pretty uh, special time to see each other. He says he thinks it was maybe about um, six months, four to six months that they were um, separated, and then they reunited at a refugee camp and uh, then they were resettled in in Punjab in the north of India and much of his family is still there in Punjab Uh, the rest is is mostly in Delhi and then he had a pretty remarkable life from there He's, (laughs) he's, he's had a he's had an interesting interesting life he's he's met he met Fidel Castro and he met Chairman Mao and he's done some really interesting things and uh I, I often just think if I could live one hundredth of the life he's lived, it will be fulfilling. <laughs> um, he eventually came to Denver and started teaching at um, DU, and he's been teaching there for oh my goodness, I don't know, sixty-five years, maybe sixty-some years. He's Has been. it been that long? Yes, ma'am. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> that's a long time. It's a long time. He's he's so passionate about teaching and he's so, he finds so much joy in it that uh, I uh, you know, obviously can't see him doing anything else, but he really found his calling in life. So might as well stick with it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Anjali, that's such a, it's a lot for a kid to grow up in and a lot to go through. So when he was raising you, did he go more on the continuum of I want to protect you from everything and I'm mm. not going to let anything touch the ground near you <laughs> or it was live your life live free figure it out.
3: Mm, interesting question. I would say the latter. Um I think he I think his experiences really were uh, in many ways uh, shaped him to not um not hold back and to not be deterred by anything and to not be you know afraid of anything and uh, he really he definitely was he was not overly protective and he was not overly um, you know cautious or even instilled in me any sense of uh, of the of a need to you know always look both ways I think he (laughs) he has a he has a little bit more of a you know, throw caution to the wind, and just, um, and I think in the Hindu tradition also, he has, he sort of follows a philosophy of karma, and the idea that um, certain things are predestined, but that you have to make the right choices, and that um, you may have, you may have some obstacles in life, and some challenges, but that those are only going to you know, make you stronger and give you character, and and build your uh, build your you know toolkit for for the next time it comes around.
1: So I'm curious because your parents obviously both grew up in very different backgrounds. How did that impact you when you were growing up? How were you able to kind of build a bridge between two very different cultures?
3: Growing up with the two cultures. I, I never thought of it as something that was particularly unique or different. I just figured I was, you know, I'm a hundred percent Indian. I'm a hundred percent American. So obviously mm-hmm. you can be both. Um, and I, I think they were also very intentional about making sure that my, that the Indian culture was very present in my life and that, uh, you know, they did a lot of Indian cooking and from a young age I was um, I learned Bharat Natyam dance and then I was also involved in a, a diff- an Indian dance group called Mudra Dance Studio which is still around today and that was a really special thing for me to participate in. We performed at things like the Taste of Colorado and we did mm-hmm. um, you know dance performances at lots of different cultural events to um, you know, highlight Indian culture, and that was something that I really enjoyed and um, thought that was, you know, it was something that was different that my friends weren't doing. Um, but I never thought it was, and uh, I never really appreciated it. I think at the at, at the time, um, and then I think maybe once I I got in, into high school i probably started to it, it became a little bit more there was a little bit more of a tension there mm-hmm. uh you know i i would go to dance performances and the other girls or other dancers looked um distinctly more indian than i did and people would come up to me after and say oh are you indian and i say well I, yeah i am and they say oh you don't look indian and I would say, well, I am. And I'm, I'm half, I guess. And kind of having to explain that sometimes felt a little bit, um, a little uncomfortable. And, you know, on on the other, on the other end of the spectrum, Indians would see my name often. Um, they'd say, oh, Anjali Nanda. And then they would look at me and they would say, well, you don't look Indian. And I'd say, well, I am. And then people trying to pronounce my name was always difficult. So I was um, always having to correct people. And I, I realize that I've definitely anglicized it a bit and, you know, stopped correcting people when they say it, when they say it incorrectly. And those things, then you sort of start to think this feels a little a little uncomfortable and when people ask those questions it feels a little bit um, judgmental or insensitive Mm -hmm. and um, but my parents were really really good about about bringing the Indian culture into our lives in a way that was very as I said before I think intentional and very meaningful Um, not only in you know cultural activities and food but we also traveled to India every year and so we got to see my family there and experience the culture f- firsthand and that you know also I don't think I appreciated that that was something different that that was not something that everybody was getting to experience and and have that joy of of having two cultures um but I don't think that I think that once I realized that, okay, you don't have to be 100% Indian, 100% American um, all the time, and you can be both, Mm -hmm. and you can embrace both and sort of get the best of both worlds, it's quite liberating and quite freeing to not feel that, um, oh, I have to just be one or I have to be the other.
1: I... I find that personally interesting because I feel like what you're talking about is a struggle almost with authenticity and acceptance Mm, of yourself, definitely, um, which I think is a very difficult thing to do as a biopic person, Mm -hmm. and I imagine as a mixed race person as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So, about when in your timeline did you kind of have this this I don't know if it was a moment or if it was a progression or how that played
3: out for you. I remember there was um, there was a group, I think it was like an Indian youth group here in in Denver that was made up of some of the some people I danced with and they were putting out a newsletter and one of them asked me to write an article about um, being Indian and American, and I remember kind of being surprised. I was like, "Oh, hmm. I am that." <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I guess I am. I guess I. I guess I have that perspective that is uh, in 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 their eyes, and I hadn't realized it. But I guess this is a unique perspective that I hadn't appreciated before. I think that was maybe around eighth grade, something like that. I was kind of just just, you know, sort of becoming more self-aware of okay. everything, you know, and, and seeing my place in the world at that time that it was, uh, it occurred to me that, okay, this is different. This is cool. Um, but it, I guess it, that also raised the issue of this is also challenging. And this is also, mm-hmm. I want to, like, I think you put the, you use the exact right word to say authentic, I want to be authentic um but I don't know exactly what that looks like mm-hmm. and uh it was when I go to India, I feel very loved by my family and they're they're very they're so warm and welcoming um but they also only would speak English, and they all speak perfect English, and I did not grow up speaking Hindi. So I always felt like I was missing out a little bit on that side. And then, as I mentioned here, always having to correct people when they say my name wrong or mm-hmm. or as I did, you know, stop correcting them and just sit back and let people say my name wrong, yeah. <laughs> which is not it's not a great thing to do. It's
1: no and it's really it's really also about how much energy you have that day right? and what your capacity <laughs> right. is at that right. particular moment to really go through the effort, too. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. An- Anjali, can you talk a little bit about, you've referenced kind of these two dichotomies. And so it sounds like when you would go to India, it was kind of a code-switching moment and being here in the U.S. was also a little bit of a, of a code-switching moment, especially thinking about eighth grade and, and trying to figure out where you are in that world. And, and how did you find that moment of authenticity where you don't have to be a hundred percent Indian and you don't have to be a hundred percent American and it doesn't have to be a 50, 50 split. It can be this fluid moment.
3: Yeah, I, I think how did, well, how did it, uh, how did it feel and and did it i think it was you know I, I'm probably still dealing with it mm-hmm. <laughs> i don't I think there was you know maybe some sort of aha moment and then a a many year long process of uh, of uh, understanding it and coming to grips with it and appreciating it. And I think that it, um, you know, it still hasn't gelled 100%. I think it, mm-hmm. it's still something I'm, uh, you know, living with every day. And um, my husband and I had a Indian wedding. So we had an opportunity to see, and his family, um, they're from all over, they all came and my mom's family from Colorado and California they all came and so it was a time for us to really see the two cultures um, to really let um, let that kind of blossom and just really see them the two cultures together and in a in kind of a one short week of partying as, and celebration as Punjabi <laughs> weddings are but it was yeah, that was a cool moment to see that and and to you know kind of consider myself to be a bit of an adult now <laughs> and to have and be able to look back and and really appreciate that that was uh, you know it, it was and still is a work in progress to really live in both worlds at the same time so I want to
1: touch a little bit. I know that you're an avid traveler, and I know that that started young for you. What did that look like? Where where were you traveling? Where were you off to at such a young age? Everywhere.
3: We <laughs> went everywhere. I was so lucky. I was just so fortunate to um, to have that experience. My dad, as a young professor, he often he often traveled he was uh, would buy these one-way twa tickets and he would get on a plane during all of the breaks from school and hit every country he could on in one direction and then go <laughs> back to teaching the next day and so he he says he's been to every country in the world which i don't know if he's recently counted but um i when we were when i was growing up he would take summer's to teach abroad, and he would often do, you know, two weeks or a month or so in one one country, and my mom and I would go with him. Again, it was one of those things I didn't really fully accept or, or understand how unique and special and lucky I was to be doing that. Um, we have now, my my husband is from, Uh, Switzerland and and his family is all over he then grew up in England and he also similarly travel is just a way of life it's Mm -hmm. not to him it's not even something unique or special or different it's just how how life is and I'm really hoping that we can share that with with kids and have the benefit of showing them the world at a young age and so they grow up just accustomed to traveling and exploring new places and seeing new things and experiencing other cultures and you know getting sick in places (laughs) and having you know discomforts that come with travel which Mm -hmm. i think are so important to learn how to deal with from a young age and i think you know I, i don't know um you know, when when that became something that i was aware of but i i do know that my dad's miles status at united is probably what made my marriage happen because <laughs> i used tell me more tell used, me more <laughs> i used so many of my dad's miles to um Uh, have a long distance relationship with my husband before we got married. So for a year he was living in Geneva and I was living in Denver. So I also,
1: and I I love the, you know, travel is a way of life. I think that's how you phrased it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I don't know if a lot of people have had that experience of it just being ingrained into their upbringing, to be honest with you. um. How did that feel? Did you feel like you were missing out on anything during the summers, like summer camps, your friends? You missed out because everybody tried a certain food over the summer that you missed out on, like a funnel cake. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'd have to say no. I don't think I, I don't think I missed out. Um, I think I just – I knew that every summer I was going to be gone for part of it, and I was very – accustomed to that. So
1: I also want to touch on why you went to law school. Um, Because I know that, you know, you've mentioned both of your parents practice law. So was that just kind of the natural fit for you?
3: I think I assumed I always would. Um, They, my dad often says when I was born that he said, well, you're going to work for human rights. You're going to (laughs) save the world. So no pressure. No pressure at and, all. And <laughs> uh, and then I actually, in between undergrad and law school, I had some really, I think, formative experiences in between that solidified that plan and and helped me know that it was the right thing to do. I worked first in Honolulu for a human rights lawyer. Named Sherry Broder, and she was, is is just a huge mentor and friend and pioneer in human rights area. So she works for, she does a lot of work for Native Hawaiians and um, Indigenous people. But she also um, brought a, she brought this lawsuit against Ferdinand Marcos, um, and on behalf of thousands of victims of his. Regime in the Philippines, and she won a settlement. She won a two billion dollar settlement, which was that's incredible. One of the largest um uh, inj- uh, like uh, I think at the time, maybe even still, is um, the largest ever personal injury um, decisions verdicts in U.S. history, and um, they're still having a hard time getting the money because it's all in swiss banks and offshore accounts (laughs) so she's still she's still fighting to get the get the money to for those victims and for those now for their families for their children and their grandchildren because it's been so so long and going on for such a long time but she was really uh an amazing an amazing role model for me so i got i worked with her in her office for about a year between undergrad and law school and then i also Spent, um, I guess, another uh, the other year um, working for the Robert F. Kennedy Memorial Center for Human Rights in D.C., and that um, was another really eye-opening experience to um, what they what they their work was primarily working with um, human rights laureates around the globe. And partnering with them, so there would be an initial, an initial gift of um, twenty-five thousand dollars just to help them get started with whatever project they're working on, and then a partnership between the RFK Center and um, the individual or the individual's organization. And as I was there, they uh, they they hold a annual golf tournament every year, and that was um, their event planner quit sort of unexpectedly, and they asked me if I would go work in Hyannisport, Massachusetts, and live on the Kennedy compound with Ethel Kennedy and plan their golf tournament, which was a bit um, over out of my league, um, but over my head. But uh, it was awesome, and (laughs) I got to hang out with Bill Murray for the whole day because he was one of ethel kennedy's best friends and lots of celebrities came out for this golf tournament and um, and that was apart from the golf tournament the human rights work that they do is really uh, incredible so both of those both of those experiences helped me know that i wasn't just going to law school because it's it was preordained and predetermined by my parents but that i was going because i actually had um, an independent interest and an independent passion in um, human rights and international law.
2: Did Bill Murray grant you total consciousness on your deathbed? He was
3: amazing. (laughs) He was hilarious. Okay. I didn't just put those words up. No, I'm so glad you said that. He was so on point. Like, he is just, he's funny. Obviously, everybody knows he's funny. And this is not, I'm not like, this is no, like, you know, big news, but he is funny even when he's not trying to be funny. He's just a funny guy. And he, he spent the whole day just cracking jokes and just being fun. And I was like, we should be best friends. (laughs) Like I really, really like hanging out with you.
2: (laughs) So besides being best friends with Bill Murray and getting tattoos and necklaces that match, You've done a lot of stuff for human rights in your career in its own right.
3: Mm, thank you. I I <laughs> would I'm I'm working on it. Um well, let's start with your law school experience because I know that
1: you um set up an asylum clinic at DU Law.
3: Yeah, this was it was a a early attempt. I mean I I don't know that it um I don't know that it it lasted in it in the form that it was when we worked on it, but this was um, shortly after one of the major uh, asylum and um, immigrant advocacy organizations in Denver shut down, and I just saw there was a need for some pro bono, some free and and um, access, you know, to provide access to asylum seekers. So. Uh, Myself and another student put together a proposal and we went to the leadership of the law school to try to get them to start the clinic. And um, at the time, Professor Regina Germain was teaching asylum law and she was very involved in this effort. And um, by the time I left law school, uh, they had taken a few cases. Uh, It was, again, as I said, early. it was an early um, effort and a sort of um, uh, you know, a new, it was a new thing at the time. I, there is currently an immigration clinic. I, I don't know how much asylum work they do, but I was really excited to, to do asylum work. And then um, and I was in law school, I was also very involved in the um, International Journal and Jessup and took a lot of human rights classes from my dad.
2: Well, and after taking all of these classes at school and being so focused on human rights, you actually worked as a as a refugee officer for a few years, didn't you?
3: Yes, and that was um, the worst time to to find my dream job. It was uh, probably the most coolest job and really really a, the dream job but the absolute worst time to be doing it. Um I was hired in 2016 which was um we were going into the election in November and um when Trump won the election he initiated the First the, the travel ban and when he um, declared the, the, that the number was going to be going down to fifty thousand, it was sort of you know, in um in Indiana Jones where they he takes the heart out of the body and he's holding it up mm-hmm. and it's just like be- it felt like my heart was being ripped out of my body. I was you know, it's maybe a little bit dramatic, but it felt just like this is so it was so gut wrenching to have, um, you know, to have just landed this great job and then to see it just kind of all, all just crumble. Um, but the work I did it, I did in the end get to travel uh, a bit, just much less than it would have otherwise been. The way that the refugee corps dealt with the reduced number and the and the changes in the law was to shift most of the refugee corps to the Asylum Corps. So instead of traveling internationally, I did a lot of domestic travel, which is a little bit less exciting than Iraq and Jordan and Tanzania. I'm grateful to have had that opportunity and and to have had that job despite the timing.
2: Well, it seems like it also factored into you with your current job, which I'm assuming is your your dream job. And, and one important piece of note on your website, when I went to Acumen law, I can't even remember how many different languages that's accessible in, but it switches it at the top. How
3: many languages does the website serve? That's cool, isn't it? I don't know exactly, but it's cool. I think I like that about it. I, um, and, and my, you know, I speak Spanish. Um, My colleague also, we have many uh, Chinese Um, clients and so he he speaks he speaks Chinese and he he speaks Mandarin and um, I speak Spanish and then um, you know we we try to uh, accommodate and welcome all languages that that we can that we can and and I think that's pretty cool
1: so I know that you're also heavily involved right now with the DU Alumni Council And I know that there's a specific
3: project that you're working on that I wanted to talk about. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. Um, So, I am on the Alumni Council, and um, there, this, so my beautiful, wonderful host here, Nicole, and I graduated the same year, 2011, from DU, and uh, we are now reaching our 10 year. Reunion are ten, 10 years since we graduated, and we're not babies anymore. <laughs> <laughs> we are we are adults, <laughs> and um, we have had some tragedies befall our class. A few of our classmates lost um, some some wonderful wonderful people, um, and one of those people was was incredibly
1: close to both you and I, yeah. Chelsea Russell.
3: Yeah, so Chelsea passed away in August 2016. Um, she at the time was um, an associate at, at at Wellborn, and she had two children. And um, She was an ultra-marathoner? She was an ultra-human. <laughs> um, just a, That's a fact. Just the extraordinary and hard to put into words um, human that she was. Um, we also lost and, and she passed away at the age of 35. And then, um, uh, about a year later, um, another one of our classmates, Christina Reed also passed away at the age of 35. Um, and at the time she was working at the federal BLM, she was a planning and environmental coordinator and she died of complications of pneumonia. And then about a year after that, Another one of our classmates, Sierra Russell, um, also died at the age of 35. And no relation
1: to Chelsea Russell. No relation
3: to Chelsea. Um, she died away, She died from, um, while well, recovering from a minor illness. And she was, at the time, an associate at Hogan and Levels, also a mother of two. And um, so these were just, they were all outstanding legal talents. They were incredible women they were passionate about you know all of them i think very passionate about the outdoors and um uh, you know living in in the environment loving the environment and living in um you know colorado and embracing all of the wonderful outdoor activities you have in colorado and they were just so adored by their families and friends and so we are Um, Our goal is to reach out to our class and to, um, in a a way of honoring these extraordinary women, and um, our goal is to, uh, we'd like to sponsor a law student, ideally a woman, um, from a, from a, um, you know, a background that would make it otherwise hard or even impossible to go to law school, that we would like to. Um, make it possible by um, setting up a an endowed scholarship. And that um, requires a starting endowment of 50000 So our goal is to raise $50,000 and um, be able to provide, give an opportunity to somebody to go to law school and uh, make a difference in the world in honor of these extraordinary women. Well, that is... <laughs> Quite a big project. <laughs> it is a big project. Uh, I've I, we've got I've got a a sort of small um, steering committee of some pretty heavy hitting women from our class that are really really motivated and energized to to get this going. So I. I I think we can do it. I think think we can do it. We can absolutely do it.
1: Yeah. So what's in store for you in the future? Good question. I really... Do you feel education knocking at all with your dad? (laughs) Do you feel... um, I know that we've talked about maybe more policy work for refugees in the future.
3: Maybe. uh, I've, I've now only been practicing which is crazy that i've been out of law school for 10 years and i'm only now a lawyer i'm actually now (laughs) starting to starting to practice um as of november of last year Uh, so i want to do this for a while i want to explore all the different areas of of um, immigration i really it's always changing so there's always something new and um, i'm learning a lot as i'm as we go the um you know it changes with every administration but obviously I'm a little bit more hopeful now that Mm -hmm. the um, laws will be more favorable and more welcoming to immigrants and asylum seekers and refugees so I would love to uh, in one way or another help Colorado become a bigger uh, recipient of refugees Um, you know whether that means policy work or working with different resettlement organizations in Colorado and um, and getting getting some more outreach and uh, and awareness for um, the for the for the refugee population specifically but um, immigrants in general and so you know policy work I can see um, I I'm curious about teaching. (laughs) My dad is so passionate about it and loves it so much. And he finds so much satisfaction in it that, um, you know, it's really, it's really what he does. It's really who he is. Sorry. Yeah. Not what he does. It's who he is, not just what he does. And um, I would love to find that same satisfaction in life that it's just so, it's just so becomes so much of who you are. Um I'd love to help with the Immigration Clinic that is now at the law school and work with students to teach them more about asylum law and, and about refugee law especially for people who are interested in international law and find themselves in landlocked Colorado where there's fewer opportunities to do um you know international work but but in the area of immigration and Asylum and refugee law, there's lots of opportunities and lots of ways to engage with people from different backgrounds and different, um, you know, ways of coming to the United States um, and and living here and becoming part of our melting pot. So I want to I want to work on that more. Well, I think we are about out of time. Wow, <laughs> really? Yeah. I could keep going on forever. I loved talking to you. This is so fun. We
1: absolutely loved having you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for taking the time out of your schedule, for making it down here, for putting on these earphones and Thank sitting socially distanced from me.
3: Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed this and I um, applaud what you guys are doing. I think it's wonderful that um, you are bringing out these voices from so many different backgrounds and perspectives. So um, I'm honored to be part of this. Thank you for having me. It was really fun.
2: We thank you, Anjali.
3: Thank you so much.
0: This has been our voices for more information on today's guest or to get involved please check out the CBA podcast page at cobar.org slash podcast. That's C-O-B-A-R dot org slash podcast. Thank you. This podcast series was created by members of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. Our Voices is a collaborative effort of the EDI Joint Steering Committee messaging team including Mallory Revel, Linda Moss, Bonnie Schreiner, Mallory Hasbrook, Mo Watson, Mario Trimble, Courtney Holm, and Emmy Lopez, with our CBA Communications Team Director, Heather Folker, and Manager, Charles McGarvey. Our recording engineer is Rick Pontellion of Lionsbridge Recording. Our producer and editor is Courtney Holm, with theme and introduction by Mario Trimble. This podcast is made possible because of the support of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. On behalf of all of us, thanks for listening to Our Voices.